0: Crosstalk. The unintentional transfer of signals between communication channels. A casual conversation. This is Video Game Crosstalk, the bi-weekly podcast of gamers talking about tech, science, and whatever else comes to mind. I am your host, Anthony Rossi, and with me this week is Paul Gallery. Paul, what's going on, buddy? Hey, how's it going, Anthony?
1: Not too much. Glad to be here with you. Finally, you're (laughs) here with us. (laughs) Yeah, there were some uh, complications, I would say, trying to get here. Uh, Yeah, so if you've been listening
0: to this podcast... um, you would know, or if you haven't been listening to the podcast, this is your first experience. First off, welcome. And second, uh, you can go back a few episodes. Paul was supposed to be on episode three. Yes, three, I believe. Nikki Vick, thankfully, was able to fill in. Paul's a friend of mine. He's been uh, doing a lot of nature con- conservancy. There we go. That's the word. Words. I can do That's words. Word. Nature conservancy over uh, here in the capital region, New York. He was about to come on, and like the day before you get a, was it a phone call or an email? I would assume phone call.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I got a phone call um, from the New York State DEC to head head out west to Idaho, actually, to fight some wildfires.
0: Okay, so it was actually Idaho. I initially said California, because you just, in your Facebook message to me, you just said, I'm going out west uh, for the wildfires. (laughs) I'm like, oh, well, California has a lot of wildfires, so I kind of assumed that, but so you were in Idaho, basically fighting a bigger fire than 90% of the world's population will ever see in their life.
1: Probably. Yeah, and the funny thing that you, you know, the funny thing about it is you said California and that's that's where I thought I was going and it's kind of All right. one of the jokes of fire is like you don't know what you're doing until you're doing it. And you know, we were on the plane we were like, "Oh, we're going to go to California." And then we were like, "Oh, never mind, we're going to Nevada." And then all of a sudden we landed in Idaho and, we were... oh, <laughs> and then it was like, okay, I guess we're going to Idaho. And then sure enough, we get, you know, we land on the plane, getting, getting our, uh, our rigs, which are just pickup trucks and drive to the fire, um, which ended up, I think when we, when we landed, it was about 50 or 60,000 acres. And when we left, it was 180,000 acres. So we oh. did our job and didn't put it out. <laughs> Jeez. So this is just huge. Yeah. Right.
0: So whereabouts in Idaho were you? Besides the big burning spot in the state. (laughs) It's
1: the black spot now. Um, (laughs) All
0: right. The big black spot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, We landed in Boise. um, And this is my first time to Idaho. So it was an awesome experience. But we landed in Boise and – we are going to this place called Idaho City, which I'd never been to, but I thought, oh, you know, Idaho City, that sounds like, you know, this big place. And we drive into the mountains and it's literally this old town straight out of a Clint Eastwood film. And it was oh, an geez. Old, old gold mining, like right down to they had a saloon and like those big front <laughs> porches that you could walk on. And um, I just kind of felt like there was going to be a gunfight in the streets at any moment.
0: Wow. Okay, so I'm pulling this up on Wikipedia right now just to take a look at it. And the street side of Idaho City in 2005, yeah, this looks like straight out of a Clint Eastwood movie.
1: <laughs> it's pretty awesome. It was It was really cool. I'd never been to a gold mining town before.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, so the estimate estimate of the 20 – oh, wait, no, that's – a. Oh, yeah, this is population. Okay. The population (laughs) in 2010 was 485.
1: Yeah, small little town. Thousand four (laughs) hundred
0: eighty five. 1,000, 485. All right, so this is beyond tiny. This is basically, this is tiny. Okay, so you were in Idaho City.
1: Yep, we were were probably about five minutes outside of town. There's um, a Forest Service base there or um, a Forest Service uh, facility. I guess not really a base. Um, Okay. And so we got to basically, when you're on these fires, you're put up in a um, what's called a fire camp, and it's essentially glamping, where you set up your tents, but you've got access to tractor-trailers that, you know, one tractor-trailer has showers, another one they serve your food out of, um, there's like a medical tent, uh, logistics, all this other stuff, but it's all tractor-trailers and tents, um, and we were actually on an old airfield that we were uh, sleeping. Okay, And that was, uh, it was, it was a pretty interesting experience, um, this is my fourth wildfire, so kind of was the first one where I kind of felt like I knew what was going on, um, to a certain extent, at least. Um,
0: okay. Because yeah, I, I was just about to ask, like, have you been to fire these any type of wildfire before? So you've been to, what did you say, this was the year of fourth or fifth?
1: Yeah, fourth one. Uh, I, fourth I've done, one, okay. this is my third western. I was actually, earlier this year, down at the um, Sam's Point Fire in the Catskills, or just south of the Catskills. Okay. Um, the Sam's Point Preserve and for those of you that don't know the Catskills is a forest preserve in southern New York. It's probably about an hour south of Albany.
0: Okay. So, when you get I think the term that you used was mobilized. So, when you get mobilized, you basically have what? 24-hour notice like, "Hey, guess what? You're going to you're going to jump on a plane and you're headed out west." Or like yeah. what what is that process like?
1: It's um so I mean, you kind of know I got into wildfire through the Albany Pine Bush. Um, I was on their fire team. And so in the beginning of the season, you have to pass a physical fitness test. And then at that test, you sign up to like a national register that says, I'm willing to go out west at any point during these periods of time. And then, um, so you kind of know, you can watch the lists online and you can see, oh, New York just posted a crew. I'm on that crew. And you know that from the moment a crew is posted, usually you've got maybe a week before they pick you up before okay. the federal government, um, like picture you up your crew and send you out West. But, uh, yeah. All right. Yeah, so, All right. And then you don't really know though, until your crew boss calls you. And that's usually 24 hours before you leave. They'll call you and they'll be like, Hey, we're leaving tomorrow at nine. So it'll be at uh, the Saratoga tree nursery. And we're going to go from there.
0: All right. So not, not much, not much notice is basically guess what suit up and, uh, yeah, meet at the, the tree nursery, I guess. And, uh, Make your way to the, I would assume the Albany Airport.
1: Uh, actually, we we go to an air the Air National Guard base in Manchester, New Hampshire, because we fly really? Out with. Really? Yeah, because there's five crews usually that go out at once. And, okay. Uh, so you've got like New Hampshire State, you've got the Green Mountain crew, you've got a Massachusetts crew, and sometimes Pennsylvania or Cape Cod will take a crew. So, all right. So
0: how many people were in the New York crew that you were with? Start with that.
1: There's 20 people to a crew, and a crew consists of a crew boss an assistant crew boss, and then three squads of about six people.
0: All right. So, and there were, how many crews did you say at this outing? <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll call it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Our, our date night. Uh, there yeah, was, it's your date night. <laughs> our date week. Um, there was 20 people on a crew. So it was about a hundred firefighters. Um, we fill up the entire plane. It's like a rented private jet.
0: Okay. Yeah. That was going to be my next question. Like, So you're flying out of a National Guard airbase?
1: Yeah, it's a, um, I'm not sure, it's like a barracks. So you, you spend the first night there, um, and then in the morning you wake up and you get bussed over, usually in school buses, which is the most dignified way to travel. When of you're course, of course. And, um, and you've got like, you know, hundred pounds of gear and you're stuffed into a school bus. Um. Lovely. <laughs> it's awesome. And, uh, you go to the, you go to the airfield, um, which is just usually, uh, Manchester International or Manchester Airport. I don't know if it's international or not. Mm-hmm. Um. And then there's like, you walk out on the, on the tarmac and board the plane that's waiting there for you, which is usually a government contractor plane. Okay. Wow. Um,
0: All right. So you do that, you fly out to what turns out to be Idaho. So what were your responsibilities once you got out to Idaho? Uh,
1: yeah. So I am just a type two wildland firefighter. So I am a sort of the ground pounder or grunt, if you will. Okay. Um, and so I was a hand, part of a hand crew, and the hand crew, um, our general responsibilities um, as a Type 2 crew, well, we're Type 2 IA, which means that we're an initial attack crew. So we have the capacity to go fight fire directly. So if there's, like, um, a little spot fire or a lightning strike, um, we would have the ability and the skill sets necessary to go direct on that fire and fight it without assistance. Okay. Um, so basically, we're like a twenty-man crew that needs to be capable of handling all basic firefighting tactics on our own for at least forty-eight hours um, without assistance from the government. Wow. So if we got stuck out there, we'd have to deal with it. I mean, that doesn't really happen, but it could, and that's what we have to be prepared for. All right.
0: So it's a just in case you guys can maintain on your own for forty-eight hours without assistance, if need be, basically.
1: Yeah. Yeah, okay. exactly. And um, so, but predominantly what we do um, as a hand crew is we hold line for the uh, the hotshots who are, not that we're not professional firefighters, but the hotshots are the type one crews. They're the guys that, and girls, that are um, professionals. They do it every day of the, of the week and they do it, you know, year round. So they see more fire in a season than most of our guys do in, you know, four or five years. So, oh, wow. Okay. Um, so they they get to do like they little burn off so like if the fire's coming towards us, um, the hot shots will burn off the the forest in front of us to sort of create this area where the fire has already a controlled fire has already burned. so when the wildfire hits it, there's no fuel left.
0: Right. And then yeah, our that's...
1: job is to make sure that controlled fire doesn't get out of uh, get out of hand.
0: Okay. it's so weird to think of, all right, we're gonna fight this literally fighting fire with fire but in a controlled way so that, yeah, as you said, you burn the fire that's... or you burn all the available fuel that's ahead of it, so by the time that the wildfire itself reaches that area, it stops because there's nothing for it to burn at that point.
1: Right, and that's that tends to be the most common strategy. Sometimes you'll do it in a way that's you don't burn it, so we'll just go through and we'll actually, with chainsaws and hand tools, remove the fuel by hand, so we'll go in and essentially mow the crap out of the first, like, 60 oh, wow. feet of forest. And then when the fire hits, there's that huge gap in fuel, so it'll stop.
0: That's got to be sweaty work.
1: Yeah, it really can be. Um, it's <laughs> it's long days. It's, it's one of those... That does <laughs> it's definitely... not
0: sound pleasant at all. <laughs> I am a little sissy right now in my air-conditioned <laughs> office, sitting at a computer, just type, type, type away.
1: <laughs> I mean... Yeah, it is. It is definitely. It can be exhausting work. Um, I feel like a lot of a lot of it. You know, we're not doing that. We're out for fourteen days, fourteen straight days. um, But we're not doing that every single day. You know, you do that for a day or two, and then usually you're doing something different. Um, You you have to be prepared to do it for the duration of your trip, but usually you're not stuck doing that the whole time, but uh, yeah, it is, it, it, it is, it, they're long days.
0: <laughs> I, I guess so. I guess so. All right. So right now I am trying to, uh, here we go. Save image as I am saving your Facebook profile picture to my desktop right now because I'm throwing this up on Twitter.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that There's actually a funny story behind that. So I took that photo in Idaho and I mean, if, I'm certain people will be able to view it by the time they, they listen to this. Uh, yeah. But it's really funny because, you know, if you look on Facebook, I get all these comments and people are like, oh, this is an amazing picture. Like, It really so, is, though. It's <laughs> so rugged. And I was like, oh, like, I had just woken up from a nap. <laughs> 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 and, like, I was just, you know, I was real tired. So I woke up, I was, we uh, It was the end of the day. And, like, we had a moment. Um, to kind of break so I just laid down and, and fell asleep and like woke up and I was like oh man I hope I don't look too like dirty so I opened up my phone to like just look and see what I looked like after sleeping in the ash and mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I just like oh that looks pretty good I'll take a picture and then it became this like probably my most <laughs> liked picture on Facebook and yeah, definitely more comments All right. <laughs> but there's a, there's a secret story behind that
0: <laughs> not nearly as intense uh, no. as the picture will make it seem but
1: no <laughs> I got to be honest with that one. That's too good not to share.
0: <laughs> and it's tweeted. All right. So, <laughs> so moving on. So before becoming a wildfire firefighter of sorts, and that's going to be the episode name, wildfire firefighter. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that
1: sounds good. I like that. That works. That, that works. Yeah. Yep.
0: You were working at a nature preserve here in upstate New York, and that is called the Pine Bush Preserve. Yes.
1: Yeah, the Albany, uh, the Albany Pine Bush Preserve. Uh, it's a. I'm going to sound like a total talking head right now. It's a 32,000 acre uh, preserve. It's a pine barrens, inland pine barrens habitat. Um, it's one of 20 in the world, so it's it's oh, wow. globally a rare habitat, and it's sort of this really remnant um, habitat from when there used to be an ocean here. So it's actually normally a coastal habitat, and this is exists inland because of the old. I think it's the Albany Ocean that used to be here back. Prior ice age, I don't know, long before
0: eleven thousand we were... something years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I could, I could go call my wife, uh, who is the geologist of the family. Uh, she'd be able to tell me. She actually takes her classes there when she's um, holding class uh, at St. Rose. Oh, really? She'll take, yeah, she'll take her geology classes there. Not so much to the preserve, but to Thatcher's Park, also mm-hmm. in upstate New York, and uh, and occasionally the landfill that is adjacent to the. <laughs> uh pine bush she'll take them there too but while at thatcher's Spark she'll explain the rock features and the fossils that you can find uh at the surface level and she'll tell the students like so you know or you may notice that the shape and appearance of these fossils and the rocks they are uh from the bottom of an ocean in uh, prehistoric times so yes this big mountain that we're walking around on it used to be the bottom of an ocean just so you know Okay, so after the podcast, I consulted with my wife, and we've got some clarification on some of these dates. The limestone rocks in Thatcher Park were formed during the early Devonian period, about 440 million years ago. At that time, New York was covered by a warm, shallow ocean near the equator. Around 11,000 years ago was when a glacier that was covering New York began receding from the Hudson Valley. Now that the information is cleared up, back to the podcast. So that's cool. Um, so what did you do at the Pine Bush?
1: Uh, I was a, um, I always worked in stewardship and then in fire. So I started off removing invasive species. Um, they have a big, because it's such a, um, it's an early successional habitat. So what that means is that it's a um, uh, ecosystem and the tree species and the plant species are the ones that colonize the fastest and they grow quickly. Okay. But, Um, they can be replaced by later successional species. So they're kind of like the beginning of the progression, but we're trying to maintain it at that beginning. We don't want it to progress all the way to a mature forest or a a mature situation. We want to maintain that Pine Barrens um, habitat. So I actually spent a long time removing invasive species that were actually catalyzing the the ecosystem advancement. So things that would... uh, they would change the soils from that sort of sandy beach soil to a more foresty soil. And those were invasive species to begin with. And then they were even going farther in sort of changing the soil and Mm -hmm. preventing the uh, pine barrens habitat. So I got to go through and with chainsaw and loppers and remove those for a season. Um.
0: <laughs> yeah, go through with like these heavy equipment things and, like, yeah, I'm taking care of the forest.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing good for the butterflies. <laughs> yes, yes, you
0: are. Yes, you are.
1: It's, it's, it is one of those management strategies when sometimes you're out there and you, you question yourself, you know, am I doing the right thing? As I sit here and cut down trees, you know, is this the right thing for the the ecosystem? Um, it doesn't feel like it. Um, especially with some of their larger scale um, removals, will they'll, they'll actually contract commercial loggers to come in and clear cut areas because it's just totally overrun.
0: Oh wow! Okay.
1: Um, and so it's it's heavy handed management with the intent to literally reset the clock, the ecological clock on this um, on this this property. That's intense. Um, it is it's incredibly intense, and it's it's controversial. You know, there's there's definitely a, a camp of people that believe it's not necessary, and that you know we're fighting we're fighting against a natural progression to maintain something that maybe I mean if we weren't here would not be maintained. Right. Um, mm. So it's a it, there's there's definitely different camps. I'm heavily into the camp that you know we're preserving something that only exists twenty other places in the world, and it's also the largest example of it. So I I definitely fall into that camp of what we're doing is is appropriate. All
0: right. So um, as I mentioned just a little bit ago, uh, the Pine Bush Preserve actually is adjacent to one of the landfills here in the capital region.
1: Yes, Mount Trashmore.
0: (laughs) Yeah, basically. So what was the relationship like between uh, working with with the preserve and having a landfill literally right next door, like sharing a property line?
1: It, it was definitely uh, is unique, um, and the Albany Pine Bush is is unique for for many reasons, um, and not least of those is its location and proximity to the urban landscape. Um, and I think the the landfill is a perfect example of that. Um, you know, you've got this giant thing that if the winds are in the right direction, the entire landfill smells like, or I mean, excuse me, the entire preserve smells like methane and it's just totally skunky. Yes, oh. yes
0: it is. Um, it, that is also right on the one of the main highways, I-90, uh, mm-hmm. going by the landfill. And you can sometimes trick yourself and say, oh, it smells like the ocean.
1: Kind of. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's of. the low tide. <laughs> it is that unique low tide um, experience in the pine bush. We like to, you know, it's a full circle. It's a whole body experience, not just visual.
0: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It is a full... <laughs> Assault on the senses. But, <laughs> but this is one of the things that are necessary. It's like a dirty jobs type of thing. Like, Albany is the capital of New York. Um, yeah, surprise. Albany's the capital, not New York City. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there's a lot of humans and humans generate a lot of garbage and trash. That all needs to go somewhere. So this is, um, the current active landfill. I'm not sure when it's slated to be closed, but the pine bush has an agreement or some type of, I guess agreement is what I'll call it at this point. They'll be reclaiming some of that land, or reclaiming the land that is the landfill. Could you expand on yeah. that?
1: Yeah. Um. So the uh the pine bush is actually slowly reclaiming uh, landfill property, and the landfill has been sort of moving around in its position. And as it shifts, like the the pine bush creeps in on it. And so what they do essentially is um, they cap it with this sort of. I'm not really sure of the of the actual specifics, but it is this thick layer of like tarping, essentially. If you think of that, like they're basically putting a big tarp over the top of it. Yeah,
0: there are many layers uh, to landfill management, especially underneath where they dig the land out first, and then they'll put multiple layers of tarp and other sealants so it does not, so the um, the garbage doesn't like leak into the groundwater sources and stuff like that. So I know there's all sorts of precautions and multiple layers of protection that the landfill uses to prevent any type of leakage or toxicity to the nearby wildlife.
1: Okay. And I'm, so I'm assuming then that it would be a similar sealing process on the top. And then all they really have to do is put sand on top of it and it becomes a dune. Okay. Um, and now granted it's a massive dune. It's much larger than any other dune in the Northeast, um, However, uh, once you get your, once you get your first, uh, like your grasses and your first, um, plant species on there, it'll start to lock down the dune and prevent it from eroding away and then exposing the landfill again. So I think it's, when I was working there, I know they were renegotiating the deal. Um, but it was 2020 was around the time they were thinking of, of doing some sort of switch where it became pine bush property. Um, don't, don't, it's not set in stone. I, I wouldn't quote me on that, but, uh. But I think at it some is, point but, in
0: the future, it's going to become preserve property.
1: Yeah, it'll it'll be a feature in the preserve, um, and you'll be able to hike on it. Um, the only the only. Th- Things that you'll notice and you'll notice this now if you go to the pine bush um if you park right there on carner road and you hike in um in the back where that landfill actually is you'll see methane vents actually in the preserve and that's areas that are have already been reclaimed okay um, but that that process will continue there'll be methane vents up on the uh on that dune as well um so i, I mean it's exciting it, it'll be really cool um I, one of the perks of working well i don't know if you call this a perk but one of the <laughs> things you get from working at the pine bush um you get to go to the top of Mount Trashmore and um, and preside over Albany. It'll it'll add a great feature to the Pine Bush and something that they they don't have already, which is sort of that really high elevation um, view. Definitely bring more recreation to the Pine Bush. I think. And I mean, hey, it's more Pine Bush, which makes it even larger. Right. It's all for the butterfly. Which actually, I feel like I should probably mention the butterfly, seeing as it is the crux of how everything gets to happen at the pine bush the the carter okay. blue Go for is for a very small butterfly i think it's the size of a dime um, and it's a federally endangered butterfly that oh. lives on this lupin plant that only grows in these pine barren habitats um, and so you have this really incredibly rare species and th- that's why the pine bush gets such um, special protection in the new york state constitution so it's actually protected in the constitution it's not just a preserve it's it is protected at a const- federally protected yeah, and in the state wildlife. constitution too so it, it is actually written in the constitution that they have to maintain Pine Barren's habitat so I think that's pretty cool all because of this little butterfly wow
0: absolutely mm-hmm. all because of the little well, butterfly, one butterfly. <laughs> that's right All right, so we're going to move into some tech and science, seeing that we we're already a good way into this podcast. Um, I always sent you some show notes before, and we got a couple headlines or topics i like to discuss. And the first one is, it is titled, Another Psychological Study Fails the Reproducibility Test, and it's off of Gizmodo. And the reason why I want to talk about this isn't so much of the article itself, or to poke fun at the... <laughs> field of psychology or any of the other social sciences. It's really the concept of reproducibility in research. So, I mean, if I go to the article, it it says that the field of psychology has been having some issues with reproducibility. Some of it's a little bit on the exaggerated side, but here's the thing that I'd like to just discuss for a little bit when it comes to actual scientific research. One of the big issues or one of the, like the main things about it and higher language is escaping me at this point, but the idea that you need to be able to reproduce the results. And like, I've talked about this to some other, um, to some other friends and sometimes you kind of get the, the cockeyed look, the kind of raised eyebrow, like, well, if you were able to do it and you are able to record your results and you were able to record how it was done, why is reproducibility such a big deal? Well, that's the thing, and especially in the social sciences and the soft sciences, is that there are so many factors involved.
1: I mean, maybe I can, I can jump in here. Um, go for it. Go for it. what you just said there, and, and it was definitely something I was wrestling with, that exact statement. Um, if you can do it and you can prove it, doesn't need to be repeated. And I was, I, I wasn't certain. And then I read this article and I, I kind of, I, I actually got sucked into this article and I read all the little, um, links that were hidden within it and, and I came out with this, <laughs> yeah, it pulled me in. There it you was go. pretty good, but I really like, I really kind of came away with this bottom line that the, the repetition, it doesn't, it, it's sort of like that. not failure, isn't fatal. What's that famous quote? Uh, success isn't final and failure isn't fatal. And, uh. And yes. I, I think repetition, all it does, even if you fail in some of those repetitions, the more times you repeat it and you're getting more and more results, all you're doing is, is continuing to add to the collective knowledge of the field. And so if someone disproves you, that doesn't mean it's, it's over. All it means is that you need to work harder to remove whatever biases you had in your research to get a better result.
0: And that's another thing, yeah. Like no matter what the research is. Um, if you take any courses in research or know anyone who's involved in research, a big issue is trying to eliminate any personal bias. And it's actually really difficult. You would think that just working say in one of the hard sciences, uh, where you know everything's quantified. Everything is just strictly based on mathematics and there is no way you can you know misinterpret the data it's incredibly false there are all sorts of ways you can spin or represent the information to fit whatever outcome that you're trying to seek so with the idea of being able to reproduce the results time and time again that proves that any of the little micro nuances of your either your lab setup or your lab environment or your test your case studies anything like that all of those miniature minute factors have been accounted for and the concept is applicable across a wide range of variances so i think this is especially important in psychology just because every single individual is completely different and their own case study so like between their upbringing and their personal experiences how they interpret things um there are so many variables just in life in general that you know, just because one study states something, we need to be cautious when we try to apply the findings of a certain study into the broad scheme. Yeah, and of I, life, I
1: think I guess The media does a horrible job of that um, because they find one study that says one thing and it's blown up to the extreme. Um, and most notably, you know the Ebola outbreak. Or the, uh, the recent studies with Coke and the sugar industry and how those things got skewed. Um, you can see how one study can say something, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it is true, um, especially without repetibility in multiple scenarios.
0: I mean, it might be true in that specific case, and that, that's fine. Um, But again, if you've ever done any type of research for either college classes or your own personal research, at the end of every research article, there is the section – like there's an entire section dedicated to future work Mm -hmm. that needs to be done in the field or possible shortcomings that exist within this specific study. So we just – I just felt the need to kind of – discuss that a little bit on this podcast. I've been trying to you know, bring a little bit of science to the world. So I just felt it necessary to discuss this for a little bit. Like just because there is a a new study came out that says this and it like the the this of the title is like this grossly over exaggerated and oversimplified and kind of worded so that it's catchy and clickbaity type of thing. There's a lot more work that needs to be done. And yes, the researchers actually do know that there's a lot of work to be done. And things like this is why research needs to be repeated over and over again.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I would definitely agree with that. And the complexity of the research and of the results, I guess what the repeatability does is it allows the initial research to reassess their their research and, and go at it again. Um, so if you have someone that, that doesn't, repeat your results or is incapable of repeating your results and they publish on that, I don't think you should take it as a personal insult to your own research. And um, you should, no, absolutely you know, not. instead of spending time trying to debunk <laughs> their replication of your study, I think it, it allows further investigation into your own topic and you can go reassess and figure out what specifically was it that you missed or that they couldn't replicate and it, it could eventually result in a better understanding of the topic. You know, what?
0: and from what I've experienced from some of the uh, conferences that I've gone to, I got a feeling that's actually the way that most researchers think. I mean, obviously it doesn't make for a good news story, but the uh, the collaboration. Like I've been to a few conferences where all of a sudden there's just a bunch of researchers who are involved in the same thing. They kind of all pull up to the same big circular table and they just like bust out their own notes and like compare notes and compare research and see what's going on in these different fields. So it's... It can be very collaborative, and it's awesome yeah, to see yeah, that it does. in action. It, it, it... So, like I said, I just thought I'd bring that up because I feel I feel it's a really important to discuss point to discuss, especially in our you know, hyper social media world where headlines mm. can be deceiving, and sometimes people who are posting these clickbait blog oh. articles they're going strictly for quantity of views and not necessarily for properly interpreting.
1: And can I kind of uh, address here just for a minute on exactly what you just said? Go for it. I and love science is a perfect example of that, I think. I felt when they first came out, uh-huh. they were producing good quality articles. And I would say in the last four months, I have don't even I stopped following them because the, the quality of their articles dropped off significantly into this clickbaity, almost not even true sci- scientific quote, quote, um, articles. Yes, I would
0: absolutely agree with that. I actually stopped following them all maybe a year ago. Even Um, some of the stuff that was being posted, I would look at it and think to myself, like, well, technically, I think that whatever post might be true, but you know, as time goes on, you know, I just looked at some of the like if one of my friends posted something from that site, I'll just look at it and think to myself, that's we're getting farther away from actual research. We're getting away from like. From everything, and we're just kind of yeah, get just too yeah. clickbaity it, for stuff. So yeah, you gotta gotta be careful of what um, sources you look like. For this podcast, uh, for this article in particular, I'm looking at Gizmodo. But for the most part, I'll go to Scientific American or Popular Science or Popular Mechanics news sources like that. Those are the type of sources that I usually use, and they are basically science magazines written by. Scientists and engineers and stuff like that. So their their quality has been consistently solid. I mean, of course they're going to have the few clickbaity things because right, you got to
1: drop you know, people business
0: in. Business is business. You know, you got got
1: to keep the lights on.
0: But they seem to be doing a really yeah, good job. Yeah,
1: I, I actually um I follow Nature and I follow the Nature podcast. Shameless plug for them. They're awesome. Okay. They do a weekly podcast. Comes out on Wednesdays. It's definitely worth it. It's a good um it's a good source right. of sort of the weekly digest in in new research. It's pretty good. And they all have the you know snarky British cool. a- accent. So it's Awesome to listen to. It makes you feel smarter.
0: <laughs> yes. For for us Americans. <laughs> oh, an accent. an accent.
1: He must know.
0: <laughs> yes, obviously. Yes. And if it's a British or some type of UK accent, oh, they must be classy because that's what we think.
1: It's only, only classy people over there, in my opinion.
0: Yes. Oh, yeah, obviously. No hooligans whatsoever. All right. So the next article um, actually came from an interesting inspirational source. As I'm trying to promote this podcast, I was followed by this this movie, this kind of indie film called <laughs> Jerusalem. Uh It is, I mean, I'll have a trailer for it in the show notes. It is basically these two American girls go on vacation. They go to Israel, and they discover a gate to hell underneath the city. So, you know, obviously, you know, good quality, oh, yeah. you know, indie horror movie. But what I found interesting about this and I'm going to have links to all these trailers as well in the show notes, is that the entire thing was basically shot on Google Glass. Huh. So the entire film, all I think it was about an hour and a half long-ish, is all in the first-person view. And this movie, uh, it came out in 2015, so it's a year old. But also a movie that came out was called Hardcore Henry that I saw earlier this year, which oh was filmed... Yeah, did you see the... Uh, did you no, see this I saw movie? the trailers,
1: and I was so turned off, I, I couldn't I couldn't do it.
0: <laughs> well, to each their own. I totally went to go see it with a bunch of bros of mine. I, <laughs> and it was awesome. It, I don't care what you say.
1: It was fantastic. I, I think it was the first person part of it that actually turned me off. But, sorry.
0: Okay. All right. Well, anyway, like... Hardcore Henry, I mean, it was an action film from beginning to end. It was nonstop action. And again, filmed in complete first person. So after watching Jerusalem, it got me thinking, you know, we've got all this new tech coming out. And the tech is becoming more affordable. That's one thing about technology is that as the technology gets older, in time, the tech gets cheaper. You know, just like with, I mean, TVs and computers are the perfect example. I mean... With a level of clarity and resolution that we have today with today's you know, 4K TVs, I can't even imagine how much that level of tech would have cost 10 years ago. You know what I mean?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely.
0: So we've got these high-resolution video cameras, like the GoPro, that you can pretty much take anywhere. The things can take a beating. I mean, it's what they're designed for. And these people have filmed an entire feature-length movie with it. I can't really comment on the quality of Jerusalem. Only because I mean, I was watching it on Netflix uh, with. You know, I mean, we have a high dev TV, like the 1080p type TV. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's it's all based on whatever streaming quality we could get through. Jeez, we're using my wife's Wii right now as our uh, Netflix box, nice. but you know, it, it works. Yeah. But so we got those two movies, and plus, uh, coming out later this year, we have Blair Witch. Which is a continuation of the Blair Witch Project, which came out in '99, and those of us of a certain age remember the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> I was there. I remember? <laughs> uh, oh yeah! Um, groundbreaking, amazing. Oh, yeah. It cost it's like what 16, thing. I mean, it was a scary movie, yeah, but it cost what sixteen thousand or six thousand? Yeah. Some ridiculously low number to make.
1: But yeah, I mean, anyone anyone with a camera and a college degree could fund that project,
0: basically. Um, And they just made, like, ridiculously stupid money on it. Just so much money was made (laughs) off that. But it was all done on, like, a hand camcorder. And the Blair Witch is going to be the same way. So, I mean, it was 1999, so they didn't have the Google Glass. They didn't have the GoPro cameras. They had the handheld camcorders. But the Mm -hmm. entire movie also was basically filmed in the first-person perspective. So with that trend... Do you see a trend of this, like coming up? Like, do you see this evolving as a type of you know cinematic trend where we'll start seeing a few more of these first person only movies for the entire length? Any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, um, and I, I honestly, I think so, and I think it's developing into two very distinct camps um, because there's also that movie Cloverfield, which wasn't exactly first person, but it was all filmed from that guy holding the camera. Okay, I
0: didn't catch that actually.
1: Uh, so um, it's it's a creature feature like a Godzilla type movie, okay. um, but it's all filmed uh, from the perspective of uh, this one guy who's carrying a hand cam like the Blair Witch. Okay, and um, you know there was mixed reviews because first person for some people I feel like it makes them sick and they don't like it. Um, it's too much movement and it's not there's no stable there's no camera stabilization or the, it isn't good enough camera stabilization. Yeah,
0: and I will um, say to that point. Uh, the last, like, 15 minutes or so of Hardcore Henry, I was beginning to feel nauseous. and I, Which is
1: impressive because gamers aren't as affected, I feel like.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I will believe that because, I mean, I can sit and play Destiny or Halo or something like that for hours on end and just be totally fine. But I guess I would also be getting the occasional break during load screens or flipping through my inventory for a little bit so I get a little bit of a break. <laughs> Here and there, but with hardcore Henry, it was like mm-hmm. a full ninety minutes of full on action with like no rest whatsoever. Uh, so an hour or so of that, and I, I started to feel it a little bit.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't have made it then, that's for sure. <laughs> too much for me. Too much. A little, intensity.
0: a little too much. A little too much for you. All right.
1: Um. So I do see it because I feel like in a first person movie. It projects – you feel like you're in it, um, and there's this very real sense of, of you're experiencing things as the character is. So you're, you're no longer this third-person omniscient um, viewer. You're this you know first-person you know narrative, and you, you don't get to know anything the character doesn't know. Mm-hmm. And it really – you experience it at the same time they do, so it makes it very real for the viewer, I feel like. And it makes things – I think that's why the Blair Witch was so scary.
0: Oh, it's incredibly immersive. I mean, that's why games yeah. do it all the time. That's why, you know, the, that whole first-person shooter is a, you know, dominant genre, specifically here um, in the U.S. and in the West, because you do see what your character sees. Uh, but, like, to go on that, what also kind of st- struck me, and going to get a little nerdy with it, and I pretend I know anything about art and film at all, but like when you have that first-person perspective the entire time, you know, how does that work in production and planning out scenes? Because rather than being able to get like a, uh, a perspective view or you know get the dramatic angle shot or pull away to see a building falling down or something like that, you're locked into the character's own reference point. And all of the action that happens has to be from the reference point. So how do you arrange the choreography and stuff that's happening on all the storytelling when you're locked into that single point perspective.
1: Yeah. It's funny you said that. Cause I actually wrote in my notes for this, for this podcast oh, nice. was, you know, how do you, how do you do that? How do you um, do that without instilling a sense of like mass confusion in the viewer, you know, where they don't know what's going on because they don't, they can't see everything. Yeah. Um, like it's a great question. And, uh, I'm sorry to reference Cloverfield again because I feel like you haven't seen it, so it's hard. Yeah, to... Yeah, well, you didn't see Jerusalem
0: it. either, so don't worry about
1: it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, but you know, they did a, they did a good job where um, you know the having a detached camera. So you know, when they're running away from the monster, okay, you know, the camera's pointed backwards because the guy's running, and you kind of get this glimpse of the whole city, you know, kind of falling apart as this Godzilla beast moves through oh, it. No, you know, that's... like they, they, they did really this. interesting um camera shots to sort of give you a larger view while still like maybe the character isn't directly experiencing it but you're sort of getting the sense of what's happening around them mm-hmm. um I-, I thought that was a good way to do it absolutely i'm not saying cloverfield's a good movie i don't want to go on record saying that but... <laughs> <laughs> they, they did
0: some interesting things but it is by no means
1: yeah i, I it was you know it's probably it's it's a it's one of those movies you watch and you have fun with it, but I wouldn't say it's winning anything, any Oscars yeah, yeah, or there's a, whatever movies it, win.
0: All right. All right, one last quick little tech and science uh, news article. Uh, something big that just happened recently within the tech world. The iPhone 7, the 3.5 millimeter <laughs> jack is gone. Oh, no. No. Ah! Oh, no. All right, first off, do not drill a hole in the bottom of your iPhone. Oh, wait,
1: that wasn't real? No. <laughs>
0: do not do everything that the internet tells you to do, please. (laughs) Like, did you see like the set of, there were a bunch of pictures and it was like false advice. They, people were giving to everyone about like how to get more performance out of their cars. And it was like for cheap snow tires, drill, drill bits halfway into your tire treads (laughs) all around your tires (laughs) for instant grip. Or to help de-ice your car windshield, put sandpaper underneath your wipers. Oh, no. And people were, like, actually
1: doing it. Oh, God. You know, if the internet tells you to do something, check the sources. Just – or, or just don't be an idiot, please. Or, can we? Yeah. Can we please? <laughs> – All
0: right, so anyway, all right, so that's out of the way. Now don't drill into your iPhone. Please don't. If you do, you deserve it. But um, <laughs> I got a quick article from Popular Science. It's headphones you can use right now with your iPhone 7. Uh, so just a quick little uh, bit on that. The first one is the Shark Lightning. And uh, the line beneath it says, Believe it or not, there are already headphones that plug into the Apple's Lightning Jack. And you bet more that are coming, blah, 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 blah. So it's the Shark Lightning. and Those run about $43. I've got... Uh, Oh, and basically, anything that's a Bluetooth uh, connection to your phone or Bluetooth uh, headset will be able to link up, no problem. Uh, have you ever used any Bluetooth headsets?
1: Yeah, I use the uh, the Bose SoundSport for running. Okay. Um, I know I said I wasn't an audiophile before we started, but I really do like those headphones. <laughs> oh, do you?
0: Yeah, uh, before we started recording, we were talking about uh, different gaming headsets and what I use for recording. Um, and how it's ridiculous how expensive certain headphones can be, and how we wouldn't pay more than a certain set amount of money for headphones, especially if I'm just like going to the gym or going for a run. But apparently, Paul's a big fat liar when he said he wouldn't spend a lot of
1: money <laughs> for it headphones. It was a gift. It was a gift for my it birthday. Was a gift. So, all right, <laughs> all I... right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Actually, I don't know what their their price range is, but I I do think they're up, up in the hundreds, like maybe a hundred and ten or something. I would be.
0: I mean, if they're Bose, I'm not going to be surprised if they're over a hundred.
1: So mom and dad spare no expense for my brother,
0: Well, it, big ups <laughs> to mom pops. All right, <laughs> Take care of the, Yeah. So I mean, there's a few others. listening on this article. I'll throw it into the show notes. Uh, the Jabra Revo Wireless. Again, their wireless control arm. Um, controllers yeah, this might be a gaming podcast wireless headphones uh jbl e40 bt wireless um plantronics backbeat fit wireless those are 75 dollars so basically um anything that's got a bluetooth connection will be able to work just fine and uh you're looking for the lightning jack so the shark lightning at 43 dollars already has one and one more time do not drill into your electronic devices <laughs>
1: just awesome. don't do that yeah, not a, not a good idea. Also, if you I happened to, to Google shark lightning while you were mentioning it. And mm-hmm. uh, there's you should definitely do the image search first. Um, there's a sweet image of a bear riding a shark, shooting lightning from its eyes. And that's how I imagine the headphones, the experience of wearing the headphones goes.
0: Obviously, because you found it on the internet, and that's how the internet works.
1: <laughs> that's how it's got to be. <laughs>
0: So we're going to move on to some gaming and geekery news. First off, Paul, have you been playing any of Destiny?
1: Um, sort of. Sort of? Sort of Sort of. and no. Um, I haven't played since it came out. I bought it when it came out, and I played for like a month, and uh, as I'm sure... You're uh, well aware of our friend Tony Bergami. I played with him, Mm -hmm. um, and we both have a mutual acceptance that it wasn't as fun as we wanted it to be.
0: Yeah, that is, and I've talked about this on the last episode with Andy Polidor. Yeah, I am in total agreement with you. When the game first came out, it was lacking sorely. But to reiterate, and I'll only discuss this uh, very briefly (laughs) since it was mentioned on the previous podcast, with the DLCs that have come out up to The Taken King, it is a full game. It is so worth your money at this. Really? Point. It no, is. Maybe I'll,
1: I'll look back into it.
0: Yeah, definitely look. Even if you just go up to the Taken King, it is so worth your time. Uh, with the latest release of Rise of Iron, I've been able to get more into it since last talking about it. The way that I see it is the first two expansions, the House of Wolves and the Dark Below. Those were kind of ancillary. They kind of explored more of the lore. Behind the game, which, believe it or not, there is plenty of lore. This has been hashed over so many times in so many different podcasts and so many articles. But if you go into the grimoire, there's plenty of lore for you to dip around in. But um, the first two DLC packs, those definitely explored some additional lore uh, in the background of other people's and enemies' origin stories and stuff like that. The Taken King, when that came out, that was absolutely an extension of the main plotline, I felt. It definitely took off where the game left off to go on to fight a bigger and badder foe, and it added added so much to the game. It added so much to the game. It was so much fun after that. And now that The Taken King has come out, I feel that it's more of another ancillary sidestep, not so much continuing the story, but exploring more of the Iron Lords and why Saladin holds the the iron banner on a monthly basis for the guardians to blow each other up in. but anyway uh there have been some rumors circulating circulating around the interwebs of a destiny 2 coming out it may be coming to pc and hopefully it'll include some more populated areas so does that sound of any interest to you any part of that little spiel
1: yeah I, i think that's a it's exciting um so, I come from the golden world that is PC gaming. Okay. Um, and... So <laughs> Whoa, I know. <laughs> oh, yes.
0: yeah. Uh, it, we don't discriminate here.
1: <laughs> um, but, so, MMOs have always been, you know, core, probably central in my uh, gaming experience. Okay. Um, and I started with Star Wars Galaxies way back in the day, and that was my first one. So, I'm actually really excited to see it moving to the PC, because I think it's going to open up m- only more potential for it to for Destiny to, to be what it wants to be. I really applaud it for being the first console MMO that I think worked in in the full extent of the word, worked.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, like I said, um, now that's uh, the additional DLCs have come out, it is definitely a much fuller game. It feels much more complete. There's plenty of stuff to do. Um, again, not going to rehash what's been hashed over, right, right. over time and time again. Uh, do you do any of the shooter
1: games on PC? Um... So, sort of. I, I play Overwatch. Okay. Um, and that's about it for shooters. Um, mainly an MMO and strategy guy. Hey,
0: do you sure? Know. But, uh, yeah, there's going <laughs> to be... So that's what the rumor mill is flying around right now. Uh, so definitely keep an eye on that. What I love about Destiny is that it is the perfect... Like palate cleanser almost and I don't mean any disrespect to it but it is great for between other major releases like right now I'm waiting for Watch Dogs 2 and Final Fantasy 15 to be released Mm -hmm. I recently completed Deus Ex Mankind Divided so that was awesome and Destiny is basically the game that I'll just dip back into between releases you know what I mean
1: Oh, yeah. I think that's the great thing about a game like Destiny. And I do that with World of Warcraft, where I'll just, when All right. times are slow, you just fire it up and, you know, resub or whatever you got to do to get back into the world. You got a month of, you know, casual play. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, absolutely. Uh, the one thing I did love about this story, um, the second one you sent there from Polygon. Mm-hmm. uh the, the reporting, it was amazing when they were like, we heard this from a guy who looked at some other guy's laptop oh, and I saw know. a PowerPoint he may or may not have been working on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, got to keep your sources secret, right?
1: Right. I was like, man, what are we talking about? Like, you know, U.S. security here? Are we talking about video games? I thought that was
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, geez, this is going be a whole new tangent of its own. I mean, security <laughs> and keeping your IPs under wrap. I mean... Mm-hmm. I, the the internet wants information, and it wants it yesterday type of thing. <laughs> I mean, the Assassin's Creed franchise, I mean, there's leaks on that all the time.
1: No, they can't keep a bottle on, or a cap on that.
0: No, not at all. But then you got, like, Bethesda and um, Fallout 4. I mean, there's a few little, like, there's a leaked image and, like, part of a leaked script that said, like, hey, we got something. We have a sniff of something. It's not much, but... It's basically it's being worked on. That's pretty awesome. And then E3 came around that year and said, "Oh, by the way, we've done a ton of work on the new Fallout game. Here's some awesome trailers. Here's some awesome stuff that you can do. Hey, notice how polished it looks? Yeah, that's because we're going to release it this November.
1: <laughs> I love that. I love. Um, I hate the anxious. The anxiety of waiting for a game to come out is like almost as bad, you know. So yeah. I like when it's released, and then you, oh, I only have to wait a month, or two months, you know? Mm -hmm. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, but then you got stuff like The Division, where (laughs) they showed it, uh, like, four E3s in a row, or some ridiculousness like that. You know, it got to the point where I'm like, I don't care, Ubisoft, I don't care.
1: Yeah, or or like Star Citizen, which has been in production forever.
0: Uh, Well, uh, The Last Guardian got delayed again. (laughs) (laughs) Poor guys. So... So exciting news, uh, exciting rumors, I should say, revolving around Destiny 2. And speaking of Ubisoft, we got, it's not so much a gaming headline, but more of a uh, a business of gaming. And this is something that I kind of learned back in my blogging days when I started following all the news sites and gaming sites revolving around video games. I started to notice more stuff about the business of video games and It is a large, large entertainment business. And and this in particular, it's another Polygon article. Ubisoft survives stockholder meeting, prepares for hostile takeover. So the biggest companies in the world are typically the ones that you've never heard of. And they are the parent companies of all the brands and whatnot that you are familiar with. So in this case, uh, it's Vivendi. And Vivendi is a massive entertainment conglomerate. And they are looking to buy up Ubisoft. Basically, and the article says that if another entity purchases more than 30% of another company's stock, they need to start making public offers for a full buyout. And Vivendi is getting close to that.
1: They're at like 20-something percent, right? Yeah,
0: they're at, I'm scanning through the article right now. Oh geez, they're at twenty nine percent.
1: Oh yeah, so, they're right there, knocking so door. So they are
0: right there, and <laughs> it looks like they were trying to get some of their own people on board, on, um, into the board. Of Ubisoft, but right now, okay, so directly from the article, Vivendi had expressed publicly its desires to get its own members on the board and to gain some say into the way the company is run, but it didn't propose any resolutions before or during the meeting. Instead, Ubisoft CEO Yves Guillemot and Ubisoft Motion Picture CEO Gerard Guillemot were both re-elected to the board and two new members were elected. So Ubisoft is maintaining control by controlling their, their board essentially. And what's also, within that same sentence, might be another reason why Vivendi is looking into Ubisoft, is their motion picture CEO. This past CE3, they announced that they are also in plans and in talks with Sony Pictures to make a Watch Dogs movie. Now, this excited the crap out of me, personally. <laughs> but uh, as I looked on Twitter and the other social media, it looks like I was the only one that was excited for this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's, I mean... It's an interesting concept. It would be fun. I feel like it's like that movie, that crappy movie with Shia LaBeouf, uh, Eagle Eye. Oh, I mean, it wasn't, yeah. I, I don't know. Wasn't that kind of similar, though, where, like, he was dealing with this uh, – he was, like, a hacker or something, and, and there was some super smart AI program that he used to take over electronics everywhere. And,
0: and yeah, he started yes. fighting the AI kind of, sort of, because it got out of control. Oh, um, yeah, that's
1: right. I guess it's a little
0: different. Yeah, it's a little different. Um, In Watch Dogs, uh, it's probably going to revolve around DedSec and the the hacker collective Hacktivists, basically is what they are so totally not modeled after anonymous in any way but um, no 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 you know what i shouldn't even rag on them for that because ubisoft does a great job in bringing real world uh, social commentary into their games so
1: oh you... yeah i i'm i'm a huge fan of ubisoft and and most of their uh, series
0: right so especially for that yeah they they do good work there so i think they're going to take on more of you know, the a hacker collective taking on some of the, uh, the elites, the societal elites. But this is actually going to be the second motion picture from Ubisoft. The first one being Assassin's Creed that's due out this Christmas. So I'm actually really happy that Vivendi wasn't able to take control of Ubisoft because it's like Ubisoft... They're the ones who were able to create these franchises. They're the ones who were able to nurture and progress and manage these franchises. I would much rather, especially in the motion picture aspect, let the game company handle the production and the coordination of the of the motion picture itself. Do you have any thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. Um, I do see a benefit from always like a constant flux and change, getting fresh blood into a system. Um, I think stagnation is the number one thing that kills an industry. Um, And that's kind of the glory of the capitalist market, right, is that we can always rely on the newest, best thing to eventually rise to the top. Um, I don't know that this is that situation. Um, And who knows, if could eventually take over and make no changes, replace Mm -hmm. nobody. Um, It could be a, a hostile takeover where no one is, is officially removed. That could be the case, too. But I think Ubisoft has earned their place and the the respect of us as the consumer, um, so it would be sad to see them change in any respect. Mm-hmm. Although, if I may
0: critique Ubisoft a little bit, it does seem like they're running out of ideas for the Assassin's Creed <laughs> franchise itself.
1: Uh, yeah, the word milking it comes to mind. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, especially, I they... It, it ebbs and it flows. I mean, Assassin's Creed 3 was probably the most boring game I played in the last five, six years. It was
0: so um, painful to play. I went through the entire thing, but it was it was sad. It was saddening.
1: Yeah. And I wanted to love it so bad. Like, I bought the special edition. I was, you know, so, so excited and so, so let down. But then they came out with uh, uh, Black Flag, and that was amazing. That was fantastic, yeah. I mean, I so much
0: fun. Yeah. I mean, it does kind of sadden me a little bit to see them move away from the game's roots as far as stealth over combat. But Mm -hmm. you know, if that's what the fan base wants, it's what the fan base wants. But you know, that's just my personal preference. But I've also grown to learn that typically my personal preference is complete polar opposite from what the masses want. So (laughs) give yourself to what you got to do to maintain.
1: Right. They got, they got to make sales. And uh, are they are they involved with Dishonored or am I totally off base? No, there?
0: no, that's that's actually Bethesda.
1: Is that Bethesda? Okay, because that's when you say you know stealth. That's the new stealth genre. I feel like is is the way that Dishonored is going.
0: You know what? I'm gonna check that really quick. Come on, Wikipedia. What can you do for me? <laughs> Bethesda. Okay, good.
1: Okay, yeah. <laughs> hold on.
0: Yeah, Got to make sure I'm quoting <laughs> the right stuff. Yeah, it's it's Bethesda. Um, so yeah, they. I was able to play a little bit of the first Dishonored. Again, when it was free on Games with Gold. And it was fun. It was good. I had just finished Thief. And I was getting kind of annoyed with everyone making the comparison between (laughs) Thief and Dishonored. But after I played the first few missions of Dishonored, I thought, yeah, the critiques were on point for the most part. Um, The only difference between Dishonored and Thief was that in Thief, you play as Garrett, who is literally a thief. He is not an assassin. Um, he has nothing to do as far as like, like definitely no firearms in that world, and he is not hand to hand combat. He is not. He's not an assassin. You know, he doesn't right. do combat. He is strictly a burglar, and that's the way that he was designed. But as far as a more rewarding gaming experience, I can see how people would prefer Dishonored over Thief.
1: Even yeah, I, I, I even though I did enjoy Thief very much. I need to finish thief. that's one of those games that's sitting at like twenty five percent complete in my <laughs> but uh yeah I, I I can now that you say it I hadn't thought of it, but now that you say it, I do totally see the comparisons there.
0: Oh yeah, it's huge. I mean it's pure like heavy on the stealth, it's steampunkish in a harbor town, and you steal everything that isn't bolted to the ground. so there are plenty of similarities between yeah. the two, so just being fair. All right, so also, uh, one final thing in the gaming and geekery uh, section of this, there will be a new Star Wars Rogue One trailer will be released. And, uh, Paul, you a uh, you a fan of the Star Wars? Oh, just just a little bit. Just a and little bit?
1: <laughs> just, just a little hair. I'm only, like, sitting on the edge of my seat, super excited for Rogue One. <laughs> just, just a
0: little bit, a little bit. All right, so um, give me the lowdown of what's going down in Rogue One.
1: So, uh, from my understanding, it's, it's, it's a divergence from the classic Star Wars theme. Um, so we're not going to be following Luke Skywalker or anyone with a lightsaber and the ability to push people from a distance. Mm -hmm. Um, and we're going to be focusing on a regular person who exists in the Star Wars world, who's, is it a spy? And, um, I'm assuming it's, uh, takes place right before A New Hope. So right before we're introduced to Luke Skywalker and the crew, um, And it's the team of people that captures the plans for the Death Star.
0: Okay. So, we're looking at the article. Uh, We've already had two trailers for this. Uh, One during the Rio Olympics and another one uh, is an international teaser containing footage. Not seen. All right. So, we will see this third and final trailer accompanying the Doctor Strange movie coming out. So, end of October, early November... Uh, Doctor Strange will be released upon the world. Unfortunately, I never really read comics growing up just just yeah, didn't. Either. That wasn't part of my thing. But the more I see of Doctor Strange, the more I want to learn about this character.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, well, it's also it's, it's Benedict Cumberbatch. Can could it get any better?
0: I don't think so. I don't know when during the rise of Benedict Cumberbatch I joined the the bandwagon on him. But um, a few years back, my my wife and I, we watched the BBC Sherlock.
1: Oh, so good, so good. So good. So
0: amazingly good. So now basically whenever I see Benedict Cumberbatch, I'm like brought back to that type of performance. And I'm just <laughs> thinking to myself, mm-hmm. yes, this is going to be amazing. And even in they that should, one. I think Martin
1: Freeman should be in there. Go ahead. I think they should put Martin Freeman in Doctor Strange as well just to get the duo back at it.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, they kind of they went back at it in the Hobbit movies because Cumberbatch actually was the voice of smoke.
1: That's right. I did not think of that. That is totally true. So
0: they, they kind of they kept it going, you know, in a roundabout yeah. way, sort of. <laughs> and, yeah, voice acting on that level, that's got to be something different because just thinking acting, I mean, what is it? What is the saying? Like 80% of all communication is nonverbal. Something to that effect. Mm-hmm. So when you're acting, and that, this isn't you know a, a knock on anyone or anything, this is just kind of observational. Um, when you're acting, you have your entire body and the stage and the set to work with to deliver your message or deliver your lines. When you're a voice actor, that's got to be a whole different um, talent set or skill pool or skill set. Excuse me, to convey all the emotion using strictly. Your voice and rely on either animators or other, yeah, basically animators to portray everything else for you.
1: Yeah, it's got to be incredibly hard to come across as convincing um, when you don't, you aren't actively engaging, and often you're not even communicating with the other actor directly. You're recording and then you leave, and the other person comes in. They record and they leave, or whatever. Right.
0: That's gotta. That's gotta be. Easy. So um, yeah, Doctor Strange is coming out later on. We have a new Star Wars. Well, do we have a release date for Rogue One? December. Okay, so we December. have a December release. Yeah. Lots of movies coming out, out
1: later this year. Oh, I know. It's going to be great. I think. Well, I mean, usually we get that rush right about now, right? We get the November video game rush, and then I feel like December is movies.
0: Yeah. Um. I think I mentioned on a previous podcast, uh, my wife is originally from Wisconsin, so we do the split Christmases where we'll have mm. one Christmas here in New York, and then the next Christmas will be in Wisconsin. And as soon as I heard that the Assassin's Creed movie was coming out, uh, basically for Christmas, I took a look at the year. I took a look at like what year it was going to be, and I said, Seth, just letting you know. I'm calling the Christmas movie this year in Wisconsin. We're going to see (laughs) Assassin's Creed, and that's just the way it's going to be. Uh, You You can let your family know that uh, your husband, that's not even actually part of the family, uh, he called it two years in advance.
1: (laughs) He called Shoddy two years ago. Two years
0: ago, I called Shoddy. That's right.
1: (laughs) I think, you know, if you had to pull it, you had to do it for that. It had to be for Assassin's Creed. Right. If I'm I'm
0: going to pull Shoddy for anything, I need to pick my battles... And this is the one. Nope, this is the one I'm calling. (laughs) All right, so we're going to move into the final five. This is the last section of this podcast. This is the final five. These are five questions to wrap up the podcast that range from irrelevant to irreverent. And these questions are basically designed so we can spin off on even more tangents in our conversation. So, Paul. Are you ready to answer some five random questions?
1: I'm ready to do it. Okay, here's part of the game. <laughs> all right, first question: coffee or tea? Oh, coffee! Coffee all the way! All the way. I well, all right. I guess it depends on the time of day, right? If it's if it's evening, it's it's going to be a mint tea. But if it's in the morning, midday, or afternoon, coffee. Mint tea, really? Yeah, I I really I don't have a good defense for why I like mint tea so much, but I do. All right, that's just
0: your thing. <laughs> That's fine. Right.
1: It's just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just got a thing for it. It's, you know, it's minty, it's right. fresh. Yeah, cool.
0: All right. So, second question: uh, <laughs> Do you do any tabletop gaming? Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs>
1: well, okay. So I paint tabletop gaming. Um, I have yet to play a tabletop game. Wait, are I've you painted... serious? Yeah, Cause I've been I've...
0: Fo- uh, obviously we're friends on Facebook, and I've been seeing, <laughs> I've been seeing pictures. Explain these pictures that I'm just like so dismayed about right now.
1: Alright, so it all started, um, actually, Star Wars is the root cause of all of this. They came out, Fantasy Flight Games came out with a Star Wars tabletop game, and I, like, freaked out. I was like, this is gonna be amazing, so I bought it, um, and then I was like, oh, the little people are kind of bland in their coloring. And, uh, I looked online, and I was like, oh, you, you can paint these things. So I just started painting them, um, and I ended up painting all of them, and then I think I've only played the game, like, once, Um, And then I moved on to Warhammer because my friends wanted to play, and of course you have to invest in the figures before you can play, so I've just been purchasing figures and painting them, but have yet to ever actually play a tabletop game.
0: That is amazing. So Paul has been posting (laughs) these pictures of these painted orcs, and you have actually yet to play your first Warhammer game.
1: Yes, not a single orc has shed blood in my campaign.
0: <laughs> well, I'm sure it will come soon. Uh, do you do any other, other modern gaming, or is this like your first foray into the the modern tabletop world?
1: Uh, this, is, this is my first foray. Um, I'm, I'm really excited. I'm loving the painting, um, but right. totally new to me. All
0: right, well, there, there's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of stuff. I'm sure once you start uh, gaming with some of these people that do Warhammer, they'll introduce you to a few others. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on in the modern tabletop world. Uh definitely worth looking into.
1: Yeah, it's it's awesome. I'm I'm actually really excited to see. It's almost like there's a this is a strong word, but a renaissance if you will for tabletop gaming and it's exciting. I would
0: go see. I would go with that. Um maybe if started a few years back, it's gaining more traction. Uh but yeah, I started playing like Settlers of Catan and Carcassonne are some of the the entry level games and have moved on to some of the uh the more advanced ones and we have a Actually, might as well talk about this right now. We have a standing game night, my wife and I, with some friends of ours. And uh, the, the other husband and I, we've decided, like, no, we need to go even more intense with our gaming. <laughs> and we've been playing this uh, card game version of Pathfinder, which is, like, a spin off of Dungeons & Dragons. And uh, so we play that, like, on our own separate game night. But um, have you ever
1: <laughs> heard of or played the game Pandemic? Pandemic. Uh, no. Is, okay, it, you is definitely there, is there need a to digital version? Uh, I don't. There might be. I'm not entirely
0: sure. But it's what's called a cooperative game. And you work cooperatively with the other people uh, to stop these world destroying viruses and diseases. Ooh. Um, yeah, I, it's a I, lot I think of fun. I
1: could, I could pitch that to my girlfriend. She's into public health. And I think I could, I could get in on that.
0: Uh, yeah, it. that's. They actually modeled the game, I believe, after actual research about how diseases spread. So it's uh, definitely worth looking into.
1: Sweet. That's that's a good gateway for her, gateway drug.
0: Yes, excellent, excellent. <laughs> All right, so third question. Are you a 46er?
1: <laughs> I am not. I have 33 of the high peaks. Um, you have 33 of them. Fantastic. Yes. It's funny, you know, as a am a guide, so I take people out um, – but what that means is that I've hiked the same six mountains like a hundred times. Oh, geez. But I have yet to get to new ones. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. So for those of you who live outside the Adirondack region of New York, a the state of New York has 46 high peaks. Now, do you know what qualifies for a high peak?
1: Uh, it's got to be over 4,000 feet. And there's also another rule that it has to be a certain distance away from a adjoining peak.
0: Okay. So there are 46 of said peaks and people who go out and climb these peaks are known as 46 or at least if you climb all 46 of them. So Paul, you have done 30, do say 33? Yeah. 33 of these high peaks. Good job. I don't even think I've done one. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get you out there. I know. I know. There's a lot of stuff I got to do, but moving on. Fourth question. Are you contractually obligated to maintain that lush woodsman beard of yours?
1: It's actually really funny that you ask that because I just shaved it off. What? <laughs> Yo, know, was, there, was there was a devastation happening accident. live
0: on the podcast.
1: <laughs> For the first time in I don't know how many years, I, I shaved it down. I mean, I still got like a five o'clock shadow, but it, it went in a tragic shaving accident. It, it, it went. <laughs>
0: horrible your your coworkers aren't even going to be able to recognize you
1: no I, you're, I, you're gonna have
0: to go to your boss explain to him what happened
1: <laughs> I, i've actually been told i need to put the chainsaw down and not pick it up again for a couple of years
0: <laughs> until that grows back and you're cleared for duty again
1: <laughs> yes until my man shield returns
0: <laughs> all right fifth and final question would you care to explain why you and your eco-terrorist brethren quadrant off sections of the Pinebrush Preserve, which we have just discussed, is a known sanctuary for the endangered Carnarvon butterfly, and burn it to the ground?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I can I can defend that one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can just say that we're a bunch of pyromaniacs, and you know we just have to get it out one way. It's better in the preserve <laughs> than preserve. That's the one thing. thing. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um. But in, in reality, it's a, um, a fire-adapted ecosystem, so we don't burn the lupin, and we don't burn in the seasons where we would be killing the butterfly. Um, and so really, in order to maintain the habitat, it has to burn. Um, we have to clear out the understory so that way the next year's generation can grow um, and support the butterfly. Um, but it actually is done in a way where butterfly losses are managed and reduced. Um, they're, they're basically minimum. Um, the lupin tends to grow in the barrens' habitat, and the burns tend to happen in habitat that is not barrens' yet. And we're burning it to make it barrens.
0: Okay. So it's a controlled burn. It's done, obviously it's done intentionally, but for good reason.
1: Yeah, there, it's it's sort of like a faster way of resetting the clock. Um, and these, these sort of um, barrens' habitats have a natural uh, fire regime, which means that they burn naturally every couple years anyways. Um, mm-hmm. They're just prone to it because they're dry. Um, the fancy word for that is they're a Zarek environment. So they, they're going to burn anyways, and we might as well control the burn so we don't end up you know, losing a household or something like that in a uh, unexpected wildfire.
0: All right. Well, good to know that you're keeping everything under control and actually doing it for the... you're actually doing it to protect the butterflies.
1: It is all in the name of the butterfly.
0: All right, and that is all the time we have for this episode. Time for end of show plugs. You can follow me, Anthony Rossi, on my personal Twitter at Hypersyntax. That is at H Y P three R S I N for X or you can follow the podcast directly on either Twitter at VGxtpod or on Facebook at facebook.com/ video game crosstalk. This podcast is hosted directly on Podbean and can be found at video Crosstalk.podbean.com. As for my guest Paul, where can our beautiful listeners follow you around?
1: Uh, you guys can follow me on Instagram or on Twitter at uh, what would a mountain do? and yeah that's it alright
0: so Instagram and Twitter what would a mountain do awesome and finally if you are a gamer or know a gamer that wants to talk some tech and science news let me know do you know of some tech news that you'd like to hear discussed do you have any other general questions that you'd like answered on the show send an email to video game at gmail.com and give me the deets of what's going down Please don't forget to like, review, subscribe, and share this podcast all over all your social media accounts. And we can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Thank you one last time for hanging out with us. Paul, thank you one more time for coming through. No problem. And in the words of Isaac Asimov, it is change, continuing change, inevitable change, that is the dominant factor in society today. No sensible decision can be made any longer without taking into account not only the world as it is, but the world as it will be.